72,000 superhuman beings, 12 legions of angels, indestructible spirit beings, stood poised, braced for the slightest nod from the commander of the army of the Lord. Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. There was a posse of soldiers and guards that had come to arrest him. They thought they had the power. Only Jesus saw with eyes of faith these angels that were at his call. He was able to see reality because he had eyes of faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, We live by faith and not by sight. Today we begin this series by thinking about what it means to see with eyes of faith in our life. We are, Lord willing, going to be four weeks in uh, a series in the book of Esther. Who's read the book of Esther? I, lots of us. I sent out a message on Elvanto um, just to prime you and uh, suggest it might be good to have a read. Um, so we're looking at how to live with eyes of faith in this first message and we're going to be seeing God's silent sovereignty. Think about what that might mean. The silent sovereignty of God at work in history and in our own lives. Um, that very well done video came from Mars Hill. I don't know if you remember that church. I'm not sure it still exists, but um, it was from uh, Seattle years ago and uh, did a great job of uh, explaining some of the background history of the book of Esther. Uh, there's so much to cover in four weeks. That's why you really need to have another read of it and familiarize yourself with it. But after being enslaved to the Babylonians for 70 years, the Jewish people were finally freed by Cyrus, who came from the east, and he was on his way to build an epic Persian empire. So they're coming from around Iran in today's map, heading over towards uh, Jerusalem and Babylon in Iraq. Uh, many Jews travelled back to Jerusalem at this time to begin rebuilding the city and many others remained in Babylon and also in the Persian capital Susa. King Darius followed at some time after Cyrus and he established the Persian Empire. Here's going to be a little test on you. Put your arm, hand up after this if you know where I'm talking about. Okay. He established his Persian Empire from India in the east to Libya in the west down to Ethiopia in the south and Turkey in the north. Who's with me? <laughs> Some of us. Uh, we're to study up on our global map. Uh, Darius was a very successful king. He respected people and their cultures and was able to bring people together from all over the place, even those that lived in what we now know as Afghanistan and um, Pakistan, which was um, no mean feat. <clears throat> they were all under one king. And then he handed his kingdom on to one of his sons from his several wives, who was called Hazarus. And that young man became King Xerxes. Esther marries King Xerxes in the book uh, of Esther. And uh, Xerxes would not have met his father Darius until he was five years old. He's what we might call a mummy's boy. This is Xerxes. He's raised in the palace. He never has been to war. He's a sport-rich kid. And he's the most powerful human being on the planet. He's probably around 32 years old when he took the throne and probably around 36 when he marries Esther, who is probably around 20 years younger than him. 
So we're looking to see with eyes of faith. The first thing we want to uh, see in this book is the significant in the insignificant. The significant in the insignificant. Chapter 1 begins with King Xerxes, king of the Persian Empire, having a banquet for his key male associates. Primarily this involves his military leaders and key politicians from around the empire. And if you've read the story, you would know this is no ordinary party. It's a big, a big party. We'll get to it later in detail. But uh, at the banquet, he gets very drunk, we're told, and he begins to brag about the great beauty of his queen. And uh, finally, at some point in the bragging, he decides that uh, he's going to show his friends how beautiful she is, his queen. So he summons her. He says, Vashti, you are going to come and exhibit yourself before thousands of drunken men. And for reasons that are overwhelmingly easy to comprehend, she doesn't come. She doesn't come. And it's an incredible act of bravery. Spurning the king's ultimate authority was a really big deal. And so the king's men have a cabinet meeting and decide that Vashti is to be stripped of her crown and banished. So what do they do? You have to find a new queen because Vashti has been sent away. So the king sends out his men and they find around 1,000 women for the king's harem. Verse 8 says, The women were taken, they had no choice in the matter, brought into the king's harem where they would undergo strict training and beauty treatments for their one night with the king. And when they went in for their one night with the king, four things could happen. They could go in there and the king may not like them. So then they would go from there and join the harem and they would not be able to get married. They would spend their life basically like a widow. They wouldn't be called on again, but they really their life would be sort of ruined. Or second option is the concubine was liked and she was called on every so often. This is not a great option either, but that's one of the, the, the options. Two or three women he would marry and uh, the children would become heirs. And if you were really fortunate, the fourth option out of these thousand people in his harem, you might become queen. Esther has been raised by her older male cousin Mordecai because she was an orphan. She was a Jewish orphan. Esther was taken to the king's harem. Um, when, she, when she went, Mordecai said, as some of you know and I, I, I appreciate, don't say anything about your Jewish background. Don't let them know that your name is Hadassah. We changed her name to Esther to cover her identity. And the story goes that the king favours Esther, makes her queen and throws this huge marriage feast. So right there, the silent sovereignty of God. It's an odd story, isn't it? The little Jewish orphan. The Jews are relatively powerless in this whole world order. But you have a little Jewish orphan girl who becomes queen of the greatest empire of the day. You reckon God might be up to something. So we're looking for the significant <coughs> amidst the insignificant. There's a very odd fact that we find as we read the uh, story of Esther, the book of Esther. Anyone find an odd fact as you were reading? doesn't mention God. <laughs> it's a very unspiritual book, Esther. And uh, so we might question that. 
Why is there no reference to religion? And in fact, the writer goes out of his way because at one stage he talks about Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes. The Jews aren't going in sackcloth and ashes without praying, but he doesn't even say that. So there's no way that he doesn't realise he's praying in sackcloth and ashes, but for some reason he is intentionally avoiding a reference to religion. What is the significance in the insignificant? Well, the Jews are in great danger. Uh, as the story unfolds, we'll see that there is a whole array of powerful forces who are planning to take them out completely. And this has happened in the past, hasn't it? When people have tried to destroy God's people and, and God responds in a powerful way, there's the pillars of fire and the Red Sea parting and all sorts of things. Esther's very different. There is no grand miracle, no vision, no dream, and no mention of God. God seems to be absent. What's the takeaway for us? He's not. Anyone relate to the story of Esther? We go through periods in life, don't we, where it's like, are you out there, God? And the sound of the tumbleweed goes along. <laughs> Where is God? Esther reminds us we need eyes of faith to see the silent hand of God in our lives. God was at work here, but not in obvious dramatic ways. There are a whole bunch of coincidences that are strung together. And if you've read the book, you'll pick up on these a little bit more easily than just hearing the text read today. If the king had not become drunk and made that boast about the queen, Vashti would not have been banished. Yet this was crucial for Esther to become queen. What if Esther had not been pretty? She was pretty pretty, but not that pretty. What if Mordecai hadn't heard the guys plotting to assassinate the king? And what we will see later, what if the king had not forgotten to acknowledge Mordecai? If he had acknowledged him earlier, events would not have occurred that had to occur. Later on, the king can't sleep one night and he has the history records read to him and he notices that Mordecai had not been honoured. One coincidence after the other, on first glance, you would think God is not at work at all. When you see um, one of the ten plagues of Egypt turn up, you think, that's God, don't you? When Xerxes gets drunk, you don't think, that's God. But God was at work. God was fulfilling his promises to Abraham that he would have a people who from whom would ultimately come the saviour of the world. God is moving the history of this planet towards an end that he's in charge of. Lots of little things that happened for the Jews to make sure they didn't get wiped out. How about your life? Where are God's fingerprints? Have you been able to stop and acknowledge as you look backwards and give glory to God to say, we didn't know you were acting there, but your hands, your fingerprints were all over our lives Allow me to indulge a little and tell you a story I've told you before, but it's a great story. It's a great story. Late 1800s, an Englishman by the name of John Small gets caught 
in some petty theft. He's with a gang of seven men and they're sentenced to be executed by hanging. So it's fairly harsh these times in the 1800s. And the judge is on his way to witness the hanging and hear any appeals on the Wednesday. On his way through the day's journey, the wagon he's riding in, this is a true story, gets stuck in the mud and they find it very difficult to get him out of the mud in the back blocks of the English countryside. But they do and God is at work in significant yet insignificant ways. The judge arrives late in the afternoon, way too tired to hear the appeals and he lets the police know. He's told that the men will hang tomorrow at 7am if he doesn't hear the appeal that night. Seven guys, only seven men, they're probably all criminals, but he ums and ahs and he decides to hear the appeal and he makes a ruling that the two ringleaders be hanged at 7am and the other five men are to set sail on the first fleet to Australia. John Small gets off and so he makes his way on the first fleet to Australia makes a life here and his grandson becomes the governor of Berrima jail and he has a bunch of kids nine in fact and after the nine kids have been born his wife dies and he happens to fall in love with the midwife from the local next town and significantly insignificant uh, with his new wife, they have four children. By this stage, he's in his 60s and he's got 13 children and John's wife says to him, they're going to have another child. They're going to have a 14th child in his 60s. And he names his last child, he was born in 1850, and he la- names his last child Mabel, who grows up to have a daughter named Pamela. And Pamela has a son named Jonathan and he's a preacher (laughs) and he's standing here, one of the last living sixth generation first fleeters because we skipped a few generations because my grandma was born to someone born in 1850 (laughs) at a very late time in her life. So thank you for indulging my family story. And if my mother is listening on the, on the iTunes, I hope the story was right, Mum. <laughs> but my brother and I often think, we think about this, and uh, we think, you know, what happened if the judge had not got out of the mud back in England? What happens if my grandfather didn't have some sort of twinkle in his eye in his 60s? Well, it's obvious I'm not here. I'm not here and uh, certain things that I've done in my life and people I've married, one woman, and uh, four, four kids, they're not the same people. What God is doing in your life is significant, though it seems insignificant. Let's stop and take a big deep breath and acknowledge God is at work silently in ways that seem like he's absent. Whole periods, seasons of our lives where we go, well, he was active there. I remember when he came in fire and did all that, but he never did anything for that decade. I bet you he was at work. I bet you he was at work. Because he's a promise-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God. He's... He's looking after his people. 
He's always working. He's bringing together all things for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. But we need faith eyes to see what he's up to and to give him the glory along the way. Amen. So how are your faith eyes? Jesus could see the 72,000 angels. We need to be lifting our eyes out of the mire and saying, God, thank you. We also need, I think, eyes to see the world in the worldly. The world in the worldly. Can you see it? Can I see it? The Bible refers to the world as an ungodly system that is filled with sin and hell-bent on destruction. To see the world in the worldly is to shake your head every now and then and go, wait, wait, wait on, that's, I'm getting sort of sucked into something that's, I don't think this is good. I'm getting swept along with the tide, with the, with the river of 21st century thinking of culture. I don't think this is all good. This is of the world. This is not of God. Do you have eyes to see the world in the worldly? Things that look like they're just modern or maybe streetwise, but people with eyes of faith, prompted by the Spirit of God and the truth of God's Word, can go, that's not right. We need to come out of that. that. That is like Babylon. We need to come out of Babylon. The world is obsessed with appearances. Anyone notice that? The world is obsessed with appearances. And if ever there was an expose of worldliness, chapter 1 and 2 of Esther is that expose. Xerxes has held a banquet. The banquet is for his important people. The banquet's duration. Does anyone remember? One, yeah, yeah, more than weeks. 180 days, we're told. 180 days. It's, it's half a year. You can read about it in chapter 1, verse 4 and following. Why so long? Because this is how long it takes Xerxes to parade his wealth. Because scholars believe there could have been 15,000 guests at the banquet and he wants to let them all know how powerful he is. The couches are made of gold. The pavement has gems and costly stones in it. The goblets are gold. Anyone got a gift of hospitality here? <laughs> You're <laughs> taking a big swallow. The flowers, the accommodation for the guests, the food, the drink, the entertainment. This is drunken revelry on a scale that really is almost not seen even today, really. In Persian culture, the most important thing about a man was his wealth and power and the most important thing about a woman was her sexual beauty. Aren't you glad we don't live back then? Maybe we haven't changed that much in the world. The world is like Xerxes. It says the externals, the image, how we present matters more than character. The world says in some places and certainly throughout history, the colour of your skin matters more than the content of your character. Money and beauty and talent and connections matter more than who you are in the world system. Here's the question that's a challenge to us. Are you a concubine to the world system today? Are you a concubine to the world system? Have you become that over time? If Xerxes represents the world, have you sold yourself out to the world culture? Have we? Are we taking on their value? 
what the world says matters or what the Bible says matters? How much does beauty and power and talent drive how you make decisions in life? How you choose your friends, spouse, what's really driving us? Do you see the world in the worldly? Can you agree with me? It's sometimes you can get to the point where you don't. It's a lot. I don't know. I'm just used to it. But I think Esther reminds us to see the world in the worldly, to still feel offended when the Lord's name is used in vain. Let's be a people who go, no, no, that's not right because we have eyes that see with eyes of faith. Faith eyes see the hope in the hopeless, the hope in the hopeless. In the first couple of chapters, how do you think Esther is going uh, when it comes to staying clear of worldliness? Esther. How is she going in staying with her upbringing as a good Jewish girl? On anyone's estimation, Esther has blown it, hasn't she? She has sold out to the culture no matter how you look at it. Feminists typically are disgusted by Esther's approach. Come on. She has not held her line. They like Vashti. We all like Vashti, don't we? I mean, Vashti's a good, solid woman who says no. Stands up to this man. She takes the consequences. Look at Esther. How has Esther got to the pinnacle to be queen? It's through absolute compliance. She's done all that she's meant to do in her harem. She's listened. She's become, I guess, this blank page for this particular man to write on. The more traditional people, like I guess most of us evangelicals, like the rabbis, we see that she's failed too. We look in the Bible and say, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. Now there's some people to look up to. Throw us in the fire. If we burn, no, no worries. We're going to do the right thing. Esther doesn't say a thing. She keeps her faith and identity secret. She breaks all the Jewish dietary laws. She sleeps with a man she's not married to. She marries an unbeliever. She's sold out. She really did. How do we feel towards Esther if we think about that? She's guilty. But then again, what could she do? What could she do? Here we are in the middle of a culture that is putting the same type of pressure on us. How many of us are guilty of being concubines to the world system. We're exhausted trying to stay ahead to keep up with the Joneses. Maybe it's just busyness that makes us reflect on how we are part of the world. Sometimes we can stop at times in our life and look in the mirror and say, how did I get to be that person? Let me ask you, anyone ever done that? Lots of us. It's in our private times. We look in the mirror and think, wow. So it's another question. Are we selling our souls for one night with the king? Esther got off to a horrible start. But this is the key. By the end, she's a brave heart. By the end, she uses where she ended up being to do something amazing. But it only happens because God is patient with her. Isn't that a good thing? God is silently at work 
Even in the midst of what looks so incredibly messy, you think, how could God be doing something with this defiled bunch of history, the things that are going on? But God is in the midst of it and his grace is at work. So I think what we can take home from this is God can still use your life if you've made a lot of bad decisions. Isn't that good to remember? The devil wants to say, you've made so many bad decisions. You're done. You are done. But honestly, Esther tells us God can turn it around. He really can. And in fact, it's the message of the whole Bible. Anyone found too many people in the Bible apart from Jesus that just have amazing records of character? There's, There's a couple that get close. But really, humanity is presented very clearly as being flawed and that's us so what are we meant to do at some stage we're meant to own up and own up and say god have mercy i've made a mistake could you change me change me from the inside out that's the christian message first samuel 16 says man looks on the outward appearance but god looks where god looks at the heart god sees with faith eyes Esther's made a very bad start, but God is going to do something with what she has offered to him. The book of Esther ultimately is a signpost to another king. That's what we need to see in this. The book of Esther is a signpost to another king, a better king, a true king that leaves Xerxes and the world in the dust. So have a think about this. If you have become a concubine to the world and even saying that most of us are like oh of course i'm not but honestly think about it how much is your life wrapped up in the ways of the world if we get to that place we are basically bowing down to the false king yes we're saying that's that's what i want to honor it's a form of idolatry to follow Xerxes of the 21st century, the world. Who is your king? Who is my king? If Xerxes represents the world, above Xerxes there's another throne and seated on its throne is another king named Jesus. And Jesus is our king. And unlike Xerxes, Jesus got off his throne. He didn't invite us just to come and sit around him like Xerxes did. He first came to dwell among us. We need to know that Jesus is a better king. He is the worth in the worthy. Faith eyes see the worth in the worthy. The best way to say no to the world is to see the worth in the worthy. Amen? It's to see Jesus as the one who is worth our very best, our whole life. Xerxes was the son of Darius, but Jesus is the son of God. Xerxes never tasted poverty nor humility, but Jesus tasted both poverty and humility to identify with us. Xerxes used his power to abuse women, but Jesus used his power to honor women. Xerxes spent his entire life being served, but Jesus spent his entire life serving others. Xerxes killed his enemies with an army of millions, but Jesus died for his enemies, saving billions. Who's our better king? Xerxes sat on a throne in Susa, but Jesus sits on a throne in heaven. Xerxes was the most powerful man on earth, but Jesus made the heavens and the earth, and he rules over all creation. 
Xerxes said he would rule wherever the sun set, but only Jesus made the sun and rules over creation. Xerxes died, and today no one worships Xerxes as God. But Jesus conquered death, and today billions worship Jesus as the only God. Xerxes thought he was a man who became God, but only Jesus is God who became man. Hallelujah. Xerxes' kingdom had subjects from many nations, but Jesus' kingdom has joyful worshippers from every nation. Xerxes threw enormous banquets, but one, the one Jesus is preparing for us makes his pale into insignificance. Xerxes' kingdom came to an end, but Jesus' kingdom has no end. Amen. Xerxes declared himself king of kings, but he died and he stood before and was judged by the one and only King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, this morning, sitting here, when we have faith in Christ, we are citizens of a greater kingdom. We have received a greater gift. We are looking forward to a greater blessing. And we gather in the name and the presence and the fame of Jesus Christ. He is our great King. He is a better King than any King and every King. He's the King of Kings. And so now we celebrate Jesus Christ. And so if they were willing to throw lavish, extravagant, fun, joy-filled parties for a demonic, false king, how much more should we rejoice and be glad that our king knows us, that our king loves us, that our king saves us, that our king seeks us, that our king serves us, and our king is preparing a banquet for us forever. Amen. Who are you bowing down to? Are you a concubine of the world system? Or we, are we leaving here today saying, Lord, thanks the, for the reminder, I am a subject of the King of Kings, not the world. I'm going I'm to season my words with the salt of the kingdom, renew my mind in the truth of the kingdom, be compelled by the love of Christ and dr that drives me out to expand the grace of the kingdom of God. May we open our faith eyes. The grace of God is near us. Open our faith eyes. See the significant in the seemingly insignificant, the world in the worldly, and, and be disgusted. See the hope of God when all hope seems lost. And may we seem the worth in the only one who is worthy, whose name is Jesus, the name above every other name. We're going to sing this song. I love this song, Sovereign Over Us. And there's a part that they call in the bridge where we, where we pray a prayer together. And it says, um, even what the enemy means for evil, you're turning for our good. You're turning for our good. It's the prayer of Joseph. It's the acknowledgement of Joseph. What is happening in our lives today? Yep, the devil might be having a field day, but we decide with eyes of faith whether we believe God is also at work. Amen? Is God at work? Well, let's sing this. And if it's not you, sing it for your brother or sister who you know is going through a hard time. That we might have our eyes and our, and our joy lifted. Lord God, we thank you with all our hearts that you're at work in our lives this planet is not aimlessly moving forward out of control. You are in absolute control. You are august, you are sovereign, and you are good. Lord Jesus, you reign. May we be your people who give you the rightful 
glory and honor you deserve. Thank you that you're sovereign over us. Amen.